Sorry if anybody has nightmares about Oompa Loompas now. <laughs> All right. Well, in uh, case you didn't see the film for yourself, uh, let me give you a quick summary of this latest addition to the Willy Wonka franchise. This is the origin story of Willy Wonka, and it focuses on his struggles, his resourcefulness, and the importance of pursuing your dreams in uh, the face of adversity. Aspiring young chocolatier Willy Wonka dreams of opening his own shop in Europe, somewhere that is vaguely Europe, uh, but faces fierce competition from a cartel of established chocolate tears. You know how dirty that business is. He struggles financially and overcomes challenges like working in a laundry factory. Along the way, he befriends a resourceful orphan named Noodle who becomes his partner in adventure. Willie uh, has this unique uh, creation, including hover chocks that help people allow to uh, help let, let them fly. Uh, he sparks controversy and attracts the attention of the authorities despite facing obstacles and sabotage from the uh, cartel, Willie's determination and passion for chocolate never wavers. He eventually finds a way to stand out uh, and showcase his innovative spirit, paving the way for a brighter future, both for him and Noodle. Now, uh, this is a good movie. It is a good movie. If you want to have a nice evening uh, and be entertained for about an hour and 56 minutes, which is a little long, watch this movie. Unless you like or don't like musicals, then don't watch this movie. Uh, there is uh, fun music, there's dancing, there's very cool sets, and there's nice colors, there's some uh, good acting that takes place in the film. But as I was looking at this story, watching this movie, and trying to get a better sense of, like, what have other people said about the Wonka movie? What's the general sense out there? Uh, I came across a series of movie reviews from reputable sources. I'm not talking about, like, Rotten Tomatoes and some people just blogging away about this movie. Uh, I'm talking about reviews from Time Magazine, NPR, Rolling Stones, uh, and they had several of uh, several major themes that showed up in all of these reviews. None of them was was overtly negative about the film. None of them said, you know, hey, this is a bad movie, don't watch it. Uh, but the resounding theme in all the reviews that I saw, and something I felt even watching the film, uh, was that uh, this Wonka, this new Wonka, you can see him on the screen here. This Wonka uh, is not. That Wonka, Gene Wilder. How many of you said Gene Wilder was your favorite one? How many of you have only ever seen that one? All right, okay, this will be fun then. <laughs> Almost all the reviews pointed this out, that this Wonka is not that Wonka. This Wonka uh, is young and dashing and aspiring dreamer who looks to help those around him while at the same time relentlessly pursuing his own dreams. I mean, he kind of embodies everything we like about the American spirit. You know, don't back down, keep pushing forward no matter what. We want to be like this Wonka. But an interesting, has happened, an interesting thing has happened when you think about uh, how this Wonka compares to that Wonka, Gene Wilder's Wonka. I don't know if you remember this, and maybe this is because I'm a bit of a Debbie Downer, but uh, I'm not overly fond of that Wonka, at least as a character. Remember, that Wonka is, uh, he's a bit of a, of a recluse, isn't he? He's kind of shut away in his uh, chocolate factory, and he's got reasons for it. He's also a little uh, exploitive, right? Like, I don't think the Oompa Loompas are getting a fair deal, right? 
somehow has taken over them. Uh, He is guilty or would be found guilty today of reckless child endangerment. He shows little to no empathy or compassion. Sometimes he is downright cruel with flashes of outrage. That Wonka is actually a little scary, right? So, So the question is, and a lot of the reviews picked up on this, is what gives? What what happened to that Wonka that he ended up so scary? One review is really interesting. Linda Holmes, writing for NPR, uh, said this, that the major appeal for this latest adaptation to the uh, Wonka-verse is precisely that this Wonka is not that Wonka. That they're not alike. As she sees it, we have enough of those fear tactic kinds of stories in our culture today. Stories that try to manipulate people into good behavior based on not much more uh, than the fear of what will happen to them if they don't uh, comply. This is what that Wonka does so easily. He stands back and judges between the good and the bad. She uh, She playfully points out that before there was elf on a shelf looking down on children to punish the bad and reward the good, there was a Willy Wonka. In the novel, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and in the film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Wonka brings uh, five children on a tour of his candy factory. Four of them are deemed bad. One is uh, spoiled. One watches too much television. One is too overweight. One chews gum, and for some reason, that's not okay. And uh, they find themselves ejected from the factory in humiliating ways. But only the good boy, Charlie, remains to collect his reward. You can add to that story, not just a precursor to Elf on a Shelf. You can add to that story the very idea of Santa Claus who watches you both while you are awake and when you're sleeping. The underlying goal is you, or more likely your children, will change their behavior so that they do not miss out in the end, ending up in some type of strange, fantastical chocolate purgatory at the hands of of a menacing Willy Wonka. So the underlying idea and appeal for this new movie is simply that we have progressed past that Wonka. We don't need that Wonka anymore. We want this Wonka. Is it changing by me? Good, all right. (laughs) And I... I have been almost transfixed this week thinking about this. This idea that we have moved past that Wonka, we want this Wonka, because while there are several directions I think you could take uh, looking at a movie like this from a biblical perspective, the one that has gripped me really comes from the comparison of these two Wonkas. And it's Primarily because I think we live right now in a cultural moment in which many people uh, have the very same kind of thoughts, not just about Elf on a Shelf, uh, but uh, not just about that kind of Wonka, but the very same thoughts about God himself. Right? And in the same way that that Wonka has a reputation as someone you are to be afraid of, I think God may have developed that same type of reputation in the hearts and minds of many Many people. And without a doubt, 
right? That uh, fear has a powerful impact on how anybody would picture God. And I think it's far more common than we might first recognize. I mean, for some of you, this image of God as someone you are to be afraid of uh, is the reason why you're not sure you can believe in a God at all. It can be true of you whether you are not a follower of Jesus or you've been following Jesus for years. You may have some very real questions about what God is actually like. Today, I want to take a few moments to explore something that is going to be challenging for us. It's not something we want to lean into. I mean, uh, that happy-go-lucky trailer we just watched you know, really did not set me up for success because we're going down kind of a, a darker side of things for a little bit today. I want to talk about this idea of the fear of God. And to do that, I want to take us to a fascinating passage in the Bible that I think counterintuitively challenges what we think it means to fear God. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. But if there's anything I want us to walk away thinking about today, a very simple idea, if there's anything I want us to walk away thinking about, it's this. God wants to be the father of we revere, not the dad we fear. Let me say that again. God wants to see him as the father we revere, not the dad we fear. And I imagine just saying that. For some of us, that brings up some very personal uh, and rather uh, unhelpful memories that we may have with our own earthly fathers. As we read this passage today, I have a deep desire that God, by his Holy Spirit, would help us reimagine reverence, that we would leave gripped with a very different image of God's, God in our mind's eye. So let me read this passage, I'll pray, and then we'll get started. This is 1 Peter, verses 14 through 19, and like I said, this is going to, be, this is going to sound counterintuitive. 1 Peter Starting verse 14, it says this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Father, we now, we pause. And as we open your word, we ask that you would speak directly to each one of us. Maybe coming in here today with a lot of questions and maybe more questions have just been uh, triggered as we've started this conversation about the fear of God, the fear of you. So we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak powerfully to us. God, would you, would you give us understanding of what your word means? And would you give us a far more grand, beautiful, 
consuming picture of who you are? Would we be liberated from fear as being afraid of you? Would we see you as the father we revere, not the dad we have to fear? And so we trust you to do a work that maybe we don't even know how to pray for yet this morning. We thank you for your kindness. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I promise we're going to end on a lighter note, okay? When it's not going to be heavy the whole time. Let me give you a little context of what we're looking at today. We're jumping into 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a letter written to a number of churches uh, in what is modern-day Turkey, a number of churches in major areas in Turkey, uh, by one of the first followers of Jesus, a man named Peter. This is the same Peter who showed up in all of the gospel accounts as one of the disciples. He's now writing back to these churches, some of which he has oversight over or has helped start. And he's writing this letter to these Christians living under the rule of the Roman Empire, helping them understand what it looks like to follow Jesus under a regime that doesn't follow Jesus, right? Which in many ways uh, helps us make sense of how we are supposed to follow Jesus today in a world and a culture and a society that largely does not follow Jesus. And it's in this first part of his first letter that Peter is trying to reframe the idea of who God is. He wants the, uh, his readers to reimagine what they think about God. Now, like I said, uh, if uh, we're going to talk about God as fa- the father we revere and not the dad we fear, this passage seems a little bit counterintuitive, especially when you look at the high point of uh, this section, verse 17. You can look with me, uh, there with me again. Verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, what Peter's saying right at the beginning here is he's telling us that if God is our father, if we're going to call him, view him as a father, then we ought to live in fear. That is the response. Now, there are definitely some things we need to clarify here a little bit to understand what Peter means. But before we do that, I think it's important that we we sit here for a moment. Because when, when we hear that word fear, conduct yourselves in fear, we automatically interpret it as, uh, you know, we, we kind of translate it in our minds to uh, be afraid of him. Be afraid of him. And the reality is, so many of us have had this thought of being afraid of God, either because that has been explicitly taught or because that's the kind of religious life that has molded and been modeled for us. Whatever, uh, you know, whatever the means, it undoubtedly has a huge influence on how you view God. We develop oftentimes an or else kind of faith. Right? This is what religion produces. It produces a set of beliefs that you adhere to or else. Right? That you fall in line or else. Right? I think this is the common thread that runs its way through every major religion known to man. This is how religion works. All of them work this way. It's the rules of the game. Here they are. Follow them or else. Right? You, you may be here today, and this is the primary way that you have viewed God all your life. A divine being who uh, simply set up a right and wrong way for humanity to live, who's waiting to catch you stepping out of line, and when you do, he'll bring the consequence. You live with the the ancient Greek writers talked about as the sword of Damocles, 
right above your head, hanging by a thin wire, always with the threat of destruction. And I think this ends up creating one of two responses, some of which we, we will recognize in ourselves, right? This uh, being afraid of God creates one of two responses when this is our system, when this is how we view God, that he is one to be afraid of. I'm going to borrow and riff on a, a popular phrase uh, that we'll be familiar with. It produces either the fright or fight response in our relationship with God. Some of us have the fright response, which is just the continuation of what we've been talking about, but it weeds its way more in, uh, and more into our hearts and minds. As we imagine God, you, you end up seeing one. If this is you, you end up seeing God as someone who is fundamentally disappointed in you. Generally, maybe not always, but most of the time he's a little bit disappointed in you. He's disappointed in the actions uh, you, uh, you're, you're a part of. He's disappointed in the decisions you've made, the way things have turned out for you. He's disappointed in the effort that you bring. He's disappointed in the way you parent because you could probably be doing a better job. He's disappointed in the way you care for your spouse, disappointed in how much you're able to do for him. And so even though the gospel is supposed to be good news of great joy, it feels an awful lot like shame feels an awful lot like anxiety. Now, I'll, I'll leave a discussion about how you may have developed that fright response for another time. But for now, I, I think what I can confidently say is that one of the many things, or of the many things that fright continues to produce in us, uh, love tends not to be one of them. I simply put, it is hard to love the one you are afraid of. It's hard, it's hard to really love the one you're afraid of. Quoting the insightful words of the most respected thinker in the sci-fi world, the ancient and very tiny warrior philosopher Yoda, says, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Mic drop. And what I think he's pointing out here is often unrecognized, but the insidious impact of being, uh, having this kind of fear shaping us. Right? It does not lead to love. It does not lead to a greater enjoyment of God. It's very hard, it's impossible to love the one you're afraid of. Which I think brings us to the second response we can have uh, when we are afraid of God, or, or that's our view, that he is one who is supposed, we're supposed to be afraid of, right? Not, not fright, but fight. You push back against the very idea of him, and I think this is part of what's playing out on an enormous scale in our world today. Maybe uh, you're familiar with this uh, word deconstruction, as uh, there are many, many people who are grappling with the beliefs that they have grown up with and trying to disentangle them from uh, real life and what they actually believe today, and more and more people end up walking away from their faith uh, that they've grown up with entirely leaving it behind, rejecting it all together. And the, the, the fight response goes on the attack against God. In his uh, book, God is Not Great, philosopher Christopher Hitchens has this to say about God and his people. 
that he, God, is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism and tribalism and bigotry, invested in ignorance and hostile to free inquiry, contemptuous of women, coercive towards children. Organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. Right? And while not everyone uh, will have the eloquence of a Christopher Hitchens in the minds of many, God has become, at best, an outdated mode of scare tactics, moral formation, on, on par with Elf on a Shelf, uh, Santa, or that Wonka, the old one. At worst, he's become a moral monster uh, and a mechanism antithetical to progress and responsible for great injustices throughout the world. Right, it might feel like I'm making too big a deal out of this right now, but friends, we, we have to see that millions and millions of people have been taught or caught the idea that you need to be afraid of God. And he's like a parent, and you may substitute your own parent who can't control their anger, who's ready to fly off the handle, that, that he is like the dad to be feared. And the implication of your faith, the way that you may live if you're holding on still, is to stay in line or else. Do what you're told or else. But friends, I want to make the case that First Peter is actually offering something profoundly different. Profoundly different. That as Peter picks up his pen to write these, uh, to these scattered churches across the ancient world, as he writes to us, he does not simply wish to help us blindly fall in line or to, to step up or else. No. He is writing to offer us a radically different picture of God. Radically different picture of God. As one who is actually unlike anything else this world has to offer. And he confronts us with the stunning picture, not of a dad to be feared, but a father to be revered. And when we look closely at this passage in 1 Peter, we, we see that Peter is leaving clues all over the place uh, for us in this, in this way. First of all, uh, I think, you know, we got to ask the question, what, what does he mean by fear in verse 17? What, what does that word actually mean, right? Does it, does it really mean to be afraid or is there something else going on? If you look at the original language of First Peter, it was written in uh, ancient Greek, not, not English. The, the word for fear there is the word uh, phobos, which is what we get the English word phobia from. Right, and while it probably makes us think of other, like, you know, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders and other creepy crawly things that we really should be afraid of, uh, I, I think we need to be careful about letting uh, a word or how we use a word today overly shape how someone else 2,000 years ago might have used the same word. You see, Peter has in mind when he uses this word fear, not so much something that should make us afraid, but it, it, it's the idea of something that should actually take your breath away. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, um, my family and I, we went out west on vacation to visit some national parks. The Midwest 
so boring, right? Like to get out west to see the mountains and see like even, even the way that the deserts are formed. There's something, something so beautiful about, you know, how enormous some of these structures are. We went to Joshua Tree National Park, which, I mean, it looks like you have been transported to another world when you're at Joshua Tree. We went over to uh, the, um, what was it? Not the Painted Desert, but the, uh, uh, the, the oh, what's the name of this forest? Petrified forest, yes, that's my wife. The pet, where all of the trees have been turned to stone. Like, what craziness is that? But, but the, the one site that stopped me in my tracks, absolutely stopped me in my tracks, and maybe it's a little cliche, was the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? I could show you a picture of the Grand Canyon. Uh, but, but honestly, if you've never been there yourself, I mean, there, there is nothing, no description, no picture can do it justice. I mean, to, to stand there and gaze into something that is just so vast, so enormous, so unfathomably larger than yourself, right? there are no words for it. Now, now, I wouldn't say, as I was standing on the edge there, I wouldn't say I, I was afraid of the Grand Canyon. That, that wouldn't capture it. But, but, but I don't think it would be off uh, to say that there was this overwhelming sense of you can't mess with the Grand Canyon, right? You're not going to play ultimate Frisbee near the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? You don't goof off near the Grand Canyon. There's this overwhelming sense of awe, this sense of Wonder as you look at this thing laid out in front of you, and at the same time, like you know, like you can't mess with the Grand Canyon, and, and it's not quite respect. That's not the right word, and it's not quite fear. I think the word is reverence. It's not a word we use very often today. Sometimes we put it exclusively in this like religious category. One author defined reverence this way. I thought it was fascinating. She said it was the strange combination of wonder, awe, respect, and love. The reverence is the strange combination of wonder, awe, respect, and love. Interestingly enough, uh, this word uh, fear uh, that shows up in 1 Peter, it's used in uh, the same Greek word is used about 50 times throughout the uh, other parts of the New Testament. And more than half the time, it doesn't mean something to be afraid of. It has that same sense of wonder or awe in front of something so much more vast than you. And friends, this is what Peter is inviting us into, right? N not an invitation to be afraid of God, but to live as those who are in absolute awe over who he is, what he is like, and how he responds to us. And I think that word reverence is particularly helpful to hold on to, that complex combination of awe, respect, and, and love. I mean, th this is just so different from the image of being afraid of him. I mean, look, at, look at the way that he's described for us. Again, plug that word reverence in or awe in verse 17. Right, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with awe through the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with wonder through the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves in reverence to the time of your exile. Right, like I said, he's dropping clues that, that we need to rethink what this type of 
fear, what this reverence actually looks like. We need to reimagine what that is. I mean, think about the imagery that's just embedded in verse 17 to call him father. I mean, this is a beautiful picture. All throughout the New Testament, when, when God is depicted as a father, it is overwhelmingly, it is always positive. I mean, out of the words of Jesus, God is like the, the father who knows what we need before we even open up our mouths to ask. He's like the, the, the good father who knows how to get good gifts to his children and delights to give good gifts to his children. The, uh, I think one of the most famous stories, and we're not going to dig into it here because we have a whole series coming up on this, is that famous story of the prodigal sons, where God himself is pictured as a a father who chases after his two sons who are struggling to love him and don't want to come back to him. And yet God is one who is compassionate. I mean, you, you find this phrase repeated over 20 times and all throughout the scriptures that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding, overflowing in steadfast love. He, he opens up his hand to satisfy the desires of every living thing. He is good to all, Psalm 106. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of God as father who cares for his children, who loves his children, who delights to give good gifts to them. But he wants us to respond the same way. That it's so often, you know, just I, I sit down when I get home from work sometimes and my daughter comes and runs up and she comes, sits next to me and spends time with me. She says, I love you, daddy. Right? There's something so innocent in that moment. Right? And this is the kind of uh, relationship that he envisions between us and him. Not one of fear, of being afraid, but of delighting to be with the other. He's like the father. He wants to be the father we revere with wonder and awe. Right? It's not just uh, that he is our father. Keep reading verse 17 and 18. Right? Peter says this. Conduct yourselves in awe, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your exile, knowing, verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways and uh, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. See, this this is not the dad who is disappointed with the actions that you've uh, made. He's not disappointed with how your life turned out. This is the father we revere who chases after his children. He is the redeemer. It's a word that means rescue, or it means when, when, when you have given up on yourself, God is one who chases you down. He chases after you. He, he, he ransoms you. I mean, if he's just disappointed in you and wipes his hands away and walks, no. He is like the father who chases after his children, who ransoms, who redeems, who rescues us. I mean, this is a profoundly different picture of one we're supposed to be afraid of. No, this is one we are in awe of. I mean, this, this is the story of the gospel. That while you and I have failed to live the way that God has created, to li- created us to live, while we have first rejected him, pushed him away, God continues to pursue us. He continues to pursue us in sending his son to, uh, to die the death that you and I have deserved and earned, to die the death on the cross that, that we have earned in our place for our sin. 
And yet the gospel reminds us that when we put our faith in Jesus, I mean, God sees us the way that he sees Jesus, the one who is the, the, the perfect uh, son of God. He sees us with all of Jesus' perfection, all of Jesus' righteousness. He's not the dad who's disappointed. He is the father who loves, chases, and pursues us. He wants to be the one that we revere, not the one that we fear. Let me close with this. Because I think that there's, there, there's this like esoteric level of a message like this when you ask, okay, what, what is, how do you experience reverence? What's the checklist? What's the app I need to download? What's the book I need to read? Right, so you know me, you know I got like 10 books I could recommend. How do you grow in reverence? I don't mean for this to be simplistic. I think the answer is quite simple, uh, although our cultural moment leaves almost no time for anything like this. The way we shift from seeing him as the dad we fear to the father we revere is simply in spending time with him. And I think, friends, far too many of us, we fail to grasp the simplicity of this. Remember what I said about the Grand Canyon? I could show you a picture of the Grand Canyon. And because I've been there, I'd be like, don't you see how, how beautiful this is? And, and if you haven't been there, it's like, that, what a cool hole in the ground. <laughs> no, you need, you, need to be, you need to be there. You need to show up. You need to see it for yourself. This, this is how we grow in reverence, is to be with God. To be with him. Friend, my, my, my fear is that so many of us, far too many of us, settle for knowing about God rather than knowing God. Even if we settle for knowing a lot about God. You see, the difference there is uh, the same difference that Mark Twain famously said is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. Knowing God versus knowing about God. See, he invites us to come and sit in his presence. This is why at LifePoint we spend so much time talking about this core value of spiritual intimacy, of spending time with God. Opening his word. And you, you don't need to think about adding a whole bunch of extra things to your life. What, what, what we're talking about is opening up the scriptures and saying, God, I want to know you more. And he will not fail to answer that prayer. Friends, my desire is that those of us who call LifePoint Worthington home, that we would grow in our, the, the depth of our spiritual intimacy, that we would not settle for knowing a lot about God, that we would have a deep and deep hunger to know him more, to walk with him more. And what we will find in that as we open the word, as we ask him, God, I want to know you more, what we will find is not this fear of being afraid. We will find slowly but surely this awe, this wonder, 
this respect and love begin to bubble up and form and grow within us. And we begin to see him as the father we revere, not the dad that we fear. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your kindness today. And I ask that you would continue to speak to us long after we leave this place. Help us to understand more of what it means to know you as the Father we revere. That we would experience that strange and complex combination of awe, wonder, love, and respect all mixed up together. And in that, Lord, would you, would you, would you grip us? Give us a greater vision for who you are. I say you not let a single one of us settle for knowing about you, but that we would deeply, truly know you. We thank you. We trust you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.